I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Monopoly Go. It's halftime and the scoreboard's not looking good. You're not sure you can pull out a win? That's when you say to yourself, it's time to get back in the game. Pull off some bank heists and take as much of my friend's money as I possibly can. That's right. The hit mobile game, Monopoly Go, lets you compete with your friends to be the biggest tycoon ever. I might do this with my high school friends. We used to play Monopoly all the time. It's the Monopoly you love, but on your phone anytime with tons of new twists, including leaderboards to compare your progress. There's so much to do. Play on countless dynamic Monopoly boards. Make your friends bankrupt by smashing their landmarks with a wrecking ball. Charge other players rent for your iconic properties. Maybe you'll even play against me. I'm great at Monopoly. You could even work with your friends to crack open community chests and in tournaments to get extra rewards. Get back out there. Put on your game face. Download Monopoly Go. Now free on the App Store or Google Play. We're also brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, where we're going to be running NBA Underdog Parlays of the Week on Wednesdays. I think we might even start this week. It's very possible. Go to their app and check out the boosts. And if we have one for this week, it would be Bulls and Magic, which I don't know what they'll boost that to, but it will be significant. So check that out on the FanDuel Sportsbook app. Also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we have the Prestige TV pod, which is heated up with Curb Your Enthusiasm and Yellowstone and Succession. We had the final episode of The Morning Show, my least favorite show that I can't stop watching. That will be at some point this weekend and a whole bunch more. Uh, the Rewatchables, Wesley Morris and I tackled Focus, the most underrated Will Smith movie, a movie that uh, kind of re-energizes his career in a lot of ways. And that is relevant because this weekend, King Richard is coming out and I saw it. It's fantastic. I'm going on Sean Fennessy's Big Picture podcast to talk about it. But uh, man, was that a satisfying movie. He's great in it. And this feels like Will Smith week. So there you go. Coming up on this podcast, Joe House is going to tell us if the Wizards are for real. Chris Vernon is going to zag about as well as anyone zagged in a while, talking about Daryl Morey and Ben Simmons. Warren Sharp is going to come on to tell us, do we even have a best NFL team or is it just a bunch of half-decent to good teams? Uh, and we're going to talk some football stuff with him. And then finally, my buddy Gus comes on to try to convince me to watch the Rocky Four director's cut, which I've refused to do. He's going to give his review. I put that at the end because there's some spoilers in it if you still haven't seen the Rocky Four director's cut. Uh, what an action-packed podcast for us, though. Uh, one last thing, Music Box. Don't forget, Thursday, 8 p.m., 
the second of our films, because Woodstock 99 is already uh, on the HBO Max app that premiered this summer. But we have five in a row coming, five Thursdays. And this first one is called Jagged. It's about Alanis Morissette. It's directed by Allison Clayman. We are very proud of this film. Uh, can't wait for you to watch it. So uh, put that on your radar. No Pat's Falcons this Thursday night. The good news is we have DVRs now. You can DVR the Pat's game and watch the music box or you could watch the Pat's game and either DVR music box or just go go to um, HBO Max. Either way, you're watching this Atlantis film. I'm just telling you now. You owe it to me. I've been giving you free podcasts since forever. You can't watch five documentaries in five weeks? Come on, stop it. Uh, all right, speaking of music, Pearl Jam. All right, taping this a little past 3.30 Pacific time. Joe House is here. He's got a smile on his face. He's wearing a Bullets pullover. Wizards fever is upon us. The best start in 47 years. Not only are you not going to trade Bradley Beal, no, we're going the other way. We're going to build around Bradley Beal. We got a playoff team here in Washington. Um, do you believe yet? Are you in? Are you kidding me? Do Do I believe? Buddy, we're we're approaching twenty percent of the season. We're more than we're like the fifteen percent of the seed. Of course, I believe we're the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. And look, I always begin every single season with the same irrational exuberance. I I, I like the Washington team before it ever plays a game. I can talk myself th- two and a half years, three years ago. I talked myself into Dwight Howard. As a difference maker. <laughs> you did. That is I true. Said, look, I said, look, uh, it'll be the best center that John Wall will have ever played with. Uh, Think of those words. Wow. <laughs> well, I, you know, that it didn't work out <laughs> for a whole lot of different reasons. But in, the, in advance of, of this season, the thing that gave me optimism was the array of professional basketball players that Tommy Shepard has assembled. And I, I said uh, on our, our preview pod, on the over-under pod with Rosillo, that if you told me that you could turn John Wall in the fall of 2020 into this array of NBA talent, and I include you know Aaron Holiday in there, you have I to. In- include uh, uh, Daniel Gafford in there, if you told me that we could get five guys that are capable of playing NBA caliber basketball uh, for John Wall, I would have been thrilled. And and as things worked out last season, Russell Westbrook, with even with all the slander against Westbrook, and it's appropriate, and you and I were pretty vicious over the course of last season, that very weird season with all the COVID stops and starts and Westbrook's injury that, that wasn't very well disclosed. They... When he got healthy and he went on his run and he drug the Wizards into the playoffs by way of that play-in game, that was exciting. I loved it. All those triple doubles in a row. But, bro, that was that was cotton candy. That's you're sitting at the circus and you're consuming, over, overindulging on sugar because it's just like, yeah, I, I'm here and it's let's just, I'm going to blow my head off with some sugar. This thing right here, 
is legit. This is team building. There isn't a single guy that's that's 30 years old on this basketball team. The entire team is under age 30. And you have what he brought in was a hundred games worth of playoff experience. These are guys who have chops, who played on good teams that have, you know, experience. And shockingly, maybe not shockingly, it's just shocking to me because of how quickly it came together. This is a same page team. And I haven't had a same page team in my life for at least half a decade, may, may, maybe longer. All of these guys are coming from the same place. You have a bunch of guys that were underappreciated or undervalued because of their situations coming together. They're he- I'm knocking on wood because health is the single biggest issue. They need to, to, to remain healthy. And, and really, Dinwiddie and, and Kuzma are, are, are crucial linchpins. But it, it's it's a magical thing, and and Wes Unsell Jr. was a completely unknown factor, unknown quantity. Nobody knew. Now he he definitely uh, put in his legwork, twenty some years in the league as an advanced scout, and then as an assistant in a lot of different places. And he clearly learned some lessons from some good franchises and some good coaches because he's come in with exactly the right touch. These guys listen to him; they believe in him. But, you know, part of that is because these guys arrived with already the very well-developed basketball IQs. This The Hoops IQ on this team across the board is among the highest. I, I'm trying to think of a team I, I, that would rival it. Maybe the early 2000s with Gilbert Arenas and Karan Butler and Antoine Jameson for, for mm. Washington. Those teams, you know, played to a, to a pretty high level IQ-wise. This team is right. Like last night's game uh, against uh, uh, the Pelicans was an excellent example. They were down 19 points in the second quarter. They were taking rush shots. They went into the locker room. The reports about the press conference say Wes Unsell didn't raise his voice. He just said, showed him a few clips, six or seven different things. We're, we're, we're kind of rushing stuff. And they just took their time and they just, you know, basket by basket, put themselves back into the game. And then when it was closing time, they closed it down. So I, I just can't say enough good things about the construction of the team or the, the, the coaching. And, and one thing especially I want to make sure I emphasize, already in 13 games, we are seeing player development, the likes of which I have not seen, and again, in quite a while here in Washington. And I'm talking about uh, Denny Abdia, who you know, was was uh, supposed to be a steal. The Wizards thought they stole him by getting him in the top 10 of that draft two years ago. And under Scott Brooks and the rotations, the and, and again, I'll try and be generous. I don't have to say bad things about Scotty Brooks. It was it was fits and starts the whole, oh, nearly the whole time he was here, except for his first season when they won 49 games. But the, the you know, the team identity, the character of the team, the players, it was a constant fits and starts. But last year, you know, you're, there's no way for young players, for rookies to get any development. And what we've seen already out of Denny, he's a he's a true asset. We don't Ooh, like Denny. We haven't even really come to grips with, you know, Rui Hachimura hasn't played a game yet this season. Thomas Bryant hasn't played a game yet this season. It's Kispert, a very Kispert's team. barely playing. Well, that's fine. That's fine. He's a he's a no. Rookie. You're right. You you got some assets. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. Yes. Let's go backwards. The coach, Wes Unseld Jr., son of Wes Unseld, helped you win a title, the only Bullets title you yes. ever had in your life, and then eventually becomes 
a pretty terrible coach and GM that yes. tortured you for uh, a few year, years too many, made deals that you had you calling my apartment way back when being like, we just fucking traded Mitch Richmond for, or Chris Weber for Mitch Richmond. Those kind of moments. So you have that. You have a GM now, Shepard, coming off the, what was it, unselled? Then it was how many years of Grunfeld? Yeah, 16 years of Grunfeld. 16 years of Grunfeld. There was guys in between uh, Unseld and Grunfeld. You never had anyone who knew what they were doing. So now you have this GM who figures out how to get rid of John Wall from a, to a Houston team that's panicking, right? Gives up a pick, but it's worth it. Houston literally can't trade John Wall. He's just going to sit out the season for $40 million. So you figure out how to do that. Then you get this miracle with Westbrook where it looks like he's shot halfway through the season, has this huge comeback boosts his trade value enough that dumbass Lakers are like, ah, oh, missing piece, big three. <laughs> and they give away all of their depth to you. And Insane. now worst case there, you just had all these tradable contracts. Best case scenario, you know, you have four good role players that have experience. Turn the pick in Aaron Holiday, who you and I both loved. Just in general, I always liked him on the Pacers. Good, tough guy. Good, tough guard. And then they go in on Dinwiddie, who is coming off knee surgery, but they kind of luck out with that too, because for whatever reason, the Nets don't feel the need to have any Kyrie backup. They could have signed Dinwiddie. Sure, they, they decided could've. not to. I mean, at some point, the luxury tax becomes crazy. But the way this team put was put together, other than the Bertans extension, which is remains inexcusable, stealing Gafford at the last trade deadline, it's a lot of like small, nifty moves, and then just telling Beal, like, we're not trading you. Stop. And Beal's like, good, I don't want to be traded. And then they all say together publicly, hey, we're not trading Bradley Beal. They're like, <laughs> got a megaphone. Just so you guys know, we're not trading Bradley Beal. And the NBA media and the Twitter universe and people, podcasts like mine are like, hey, what could they get for Bradley Beal? And they're going, we're not trading Bradley Beal. And they stuck with him. And by the way, He's kind of sucked during this 10 and three thing. Look at his stats. That's yes. the weirdest thing about this. He's not even playing well yet. Yep. It's great. It's wonderful. And part of the thing, I mean, to be fair to, to Beal also, his grandma passed away, so he hasn't played the past three games. And you know, she was a very important person in his life. And, you know, um, he, I, I don't begrudge him trying to hit the reset button with all of this, this set of professionals. He's never played with this much talent. I don't, in his entire career, even I think it was the 2016, 2017 season, which was John Wall at, at his peak. And they had Marcin Gortat and Ubre was uh, sort of up and coming. They had, you know, decent you had a Morris. pieces. You had one of the, Mar yeah, you we had the Morris, Morris that, got, right. that got beat up by Joker. Yes. One, one of the sophomores brothers. Yes. We had one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was the team that, that we lost in game seven to, to the Celtics. We got Olenek. That was the Kelly Olenek game. You got that, the Olenek that, that game. Season. Yeah. One of my favorite but games. But that was a pretty competent, you know, basketball team. That's the team that won 49 games and it all went downhill from there because John Wall got hurt, you know, repeatedly and, and so on and so forth. We don't need to go through it. But well, the fact that you you didn't trade Bill, which is nice. And now he needs to prove that he's an A-list a guy. Is he? I, well, I, have I said it out loud? I don't you, think you have. Is. You've said yeah. it out loud, but go do your thing. You think he's a, you think he's a number two. He's a one he B. I think he's a terrific uh, beta. I think he is, is a, and, and honestly, um, I think over the course of this season, and we've seen it over these last couple of games, Spencer Dinwiddie is the alpha and, and he deserves to be the alpha. 
he has the highest basketball IQ of any Washington player that I've um, encountered. And I mean, I think he also has like a genuinely high IQ. He's a, he, I think he was, he had a chance to go to Harvard um, and chose Colorado for the, so the, the basketball part of it, but like he, his uh, press conferences are outstanding and, you know, just his whole like perspective on life. It's clear that he is a, a deep dude and that as a, as a leader, as a, with, with leadership, you know, it is funny that, that now he's around the same age as as uh, Harold as Montrez, um, but he's he's a sort of a natural leader, and and he's got that point guard leadership instinct as well. I noticed it in one of the Celtic games, where they were still kind of figuring out what kind of team they were when they beat us in overtime, and Dinwiddie just kind of had the ball and was making all the decisions, and it was weird because you just expect most of these teams to work like how the dumb Celtics operate, where it's like, all right, Tatum take 10 seconds to dribble the ball up and then we'll set you kind of a half ass pick and then dribble between your legs and shoot a 25 footer. That's most teams offense at the end of games. Dinwiddie was actually like trying to create stuff. And more importantly, the ball wasn't going to Beal. And I thought that that was really interesting because I just assumed Beal had earned that kind of, you know, the, the biggest, piece of chicken at the, at the table is Chris Rocco is jokes. So dad always gets the biggest chicken. I thought, I thought Beal was the one who had the biggest plate, but Dinwiddie's actually like, no, 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 I, I got this. And you think like, what'd you, what'd you pay for him? It was a relatively reasonable contract, right? It was less than it, 20. Well, it came in as part of the Westbrook deal. Like the, the contract, all, all of the contracts together, Dinwiddie was a piece. Uh, and I don't right. remember how the math all worked out, but yeah, because was Westbrook was in cheap, that 40 though. some million class. Uh, right. R- relatively cheap. You know, again, it, unknown quantity. Guy hasn't played any competitive basketball in, in over a year and, you know, coming off knee surgery. And, and it's a but, little goofy. Like, he definitely, he has moments where he, it seemed like he thought he was a bigger star than he was. Sure. So you combine that with Harrow, who I think has had some mixed experiences over the years on teams where it seems like he wears out his welcome. Never seems like he fit in with the Lakers. I think the Clippers were dying to get rid of him by the end of the bubble season. Um, but it seems like the from a personality standpoint, everyone's fine. I wonder, is this the team you have in February? Is there because you have the you have the Kispert piece, yep. who I think has trade value. Um, I don't think you trade Denny, but then you have Rui Hachimura too, who I think could also have value. And could you flip both of those guys with something else and actually get somebody who could maybe even play crunch time? Well, there, there are. You didn't even mention two other guys. Thomas Bryant um, should have some value if he can come back and and demonstrate to the league that he is has that same bounce as what he had before he got injured. That same relentless energy around the rim. Yeah. Um, and his scoring instincts are, are are still there. He's a he's an asset. And Bertans, notwithstanding the money, is an attractive <laughs> asset for a team that that knows that they're going to play him for nine minutes. <laughs> And try did and get, you, get. Did you just say notwithstanding the money? Well, look, I mean, some, you're like that. If you're and a that contender, girl, notwithstanding the cold sore. If it's February and you feel like you're a shooter away, and you, you're gonna, you'd still you're be gonna a shooter in, away with Bertans because he hasn't been a shot in two years. 
Uh, he's, 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 I will tell you. Oh, my uh, bad. He's up to 33% from three this year. I didn't realize he was on a hot streak and he's hurt right now. But I, <laughs> I think, I think, I think that, that Wes Unsung Jr. understands the the right role for him. It's a low You're minutes oh, role. Oh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a cheerleader role. It's a low minutes role. I will tell you that much. And I love that you're trying to voice Berthods. I mean, look, a he has value because he, no. he his track record was a guy who could to come off the bench and make a bunch of buckets and before he got one paid. out of every five games he does it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better you better get his head right because you actually need him as a shooter. I for the record, I always kind of liked Kuzma. I thought on the Lakers he was just a horrible fit, and it was hard to separate the fit from the player. But I just always thought he. He and LeBron played the exact same position. That's the problem. He, he's and, and a stretch he, four, kind of tweener three, four. And it's like now if when he's out there with LeBron, they don't make sense together. He was a young kid in L.A. also, which clearly yeah. some, some of the stuff he did rubbed LeBron the wrong way. And once he got on the wrong side of LeBron, uh, that, that was kind of it. But I will tell you, he's an absolute revelation. I had no idea what a talented rebounder he is. He is strong as bull. He is one bad mother effer about going and grabbing the basketball. He's averaging over nine rebounds a game. Wow. Like Good defender, too. Points. Good defender. Will yeah. get in your chest. That This is the thing. This team defensively, and this is what, what Unsell deserves credit for. You know, the, the, the previous three seasons, they were like, between 25 and 30 ranked in the league in, in terms of defensive efficiency and all those metrics. And I, they're in the top five right now. And that's the single biggest transformative kind of thing. Seeing this team defend three-pointers, seeing KCP rushing out at, at shooters, seeing the, the effort. It's a group effort. And really, Trez deserves a lot of credit. That dude plays hard as a mug. and It's a good situation for him. Yeah, it's a great it, situation for him. He's... He's a little bit of a novelty act. I'll be interested. Like sure. in a playoff series, I think you can play him off the floor. But um, the energy he brings, especially during the regular season. Good in the East. Good yeah. player for the East. Like really, Always they're, kills they're, the they're not a ton, not a ton of guys that fit his, you know, in the in the West, I, I could see, you know, that 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 common theme of of he can't go up, but he can't play against certain teams in the East. I think he can play. It's funny. If you look at the East and I know it's early and that there's a there's a decent chance that us, you leading my podcast with the Wizards might be the highlight of the Wizards season. Like it's in <laughs> it's play. That's a, that's a possibility. It's possible. It's possible. But you think, I think Brooklyn's going to get the one seed unless Durant gets hurt. He's just too talented. And once Harden gets going, I just assume they're probably the safest bet. I kind of believe in Washington as a top four seed from what I've seen. Wow. wow. I kind of believe in Chicago as a top four seed from what I've seen. And I would say Miami would be the other one. And then that, after that, you start you're, talking about... You're, you're, you're bumping out Philly and Milwaukee? Neither one of those is top four. See, if you put Miami, Washington, and Chicago Yeah, you're in the right. Top I got to get Milwaukee in there. My bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, top five on, seed. I, I am in. Top five seed. Top six. I mean, I'll yeah. take top six. So I, we don't, if no, we don't have to five. play in the play-in, that's a, that's a great outcome. The thing is, Milwaukee already has eight losses. Yeah. And looks like they're kind of having that I'm not worried yet, but it does look like they're kind of having that they year just, from hell post championship. Yeah, they don't get season. any of their guys. The other guys are playing. The yeah, other guys and every are every yet. time they play, there's a big bullseye in the back. You're right. Top five. I do believe in the Bulls. I oh. think the 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 Lonzo Caruso combo. Yeah, 
That's a real thing. Those we, guys defensively and that's it. chemistry, we so teamwork. Skeptical. Oh, we were, we were so skeptical. We were dismissive before the you know the over under pod about those, and we we got to give credit to Billy Donovan. I think he's in the coach of the year running. Yeah, I was skeptical of the defense. I didn't think that they would be able right. to guard people. And then what's weird is they lose Williams, who people thought was going to be their best defensive swing. But then you watch Caruso. I loved Lonzo last summer for the Celtics. Yeah. And I had my fingers crossed that there was going to be some sort of Marcus Smart Lonzo. And But it seems like the that was called in, that he was going to Chicago probably <laughs> a year ago. You're but, being called in as in tampered? Is that what you're right. saying? Yeah. But, but, I mean, I think, there's an investigation. There's an investigation right now. I do like their five. And it's weird. Vucevic is kind of the most... Not sure if that one's going to come through piece of the five. Just because how he was used in Orlando and the usage rate he had versus like now as this kind of pick and pop banger. Um, they'll figure it out. I'm not worried about it. But the other four, the way they play together is... the. The fact that DeRozan, Levine, and Caruso and Lonzo just all have chemistry already is pretty crazy, considering they all weren't on the it's, same team. But I just the like watching them. the way I feel about Washington. Yeah. Like, it's crazy chemistry. Now, I mean, you know, a couple of the three of these guys played together before, so. Yeah. So, you think, I don't know, I think they're a safer bet going down the list. Cavs just lost Mobley two weeks. Knicks, Sixers with this Embiid. Who knows with his health and then the Simmons piece of it. Charlotte, I think their defense is just going to... They're going to be the most fun team in the East, but probably have the most frustrating losses. Toronto, you just go on the online. I guess the one that... Uh, I, that I, well, we were, I wouldn't dismiss Toronto, and I think the Sixers are going to be in the mix as well. Like the East is super I'm dismissing Toronto. I, Why? I, Atlanta is the wild card to me. I don't know what to make of them. And they're six and nine. I think it's a... it's. Some people think it's Trey and the rules. I think it's a too many guys thing. It it's one both. of those teams where you look and you're like, who's happy on this team? Who's getting the um, amount of minutes that they would have wanted? And you go that, through that, and it's like, oh, that guy's unhappy. That guy's unhappy. Yep, he's unhappy. It's a shame that uh, Simmons and the Sixers are in the East because I think the two most interesting trade potential partners would be Toronto and Atlanta. Both of those teams could use Ben Simmons and both of those teams have really interesting young assets that would be difference makers for yeah. the for the Sixers. But there ain't no way that Daryl Morey is trading Ben Simmons to, you know, rivals in the East. I wonder if it's as simple as it's just Houston and it's Christian Wood and maybe a contract and they call it a day. I think and that's, that's the best a, they that's can a do. Fair it's a fair trade. Christian Wood is really effing good. And I would like to see Christian policy, Wood on a good team. Yeah. That insurance policy against Embiid, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Ben Simmons in a second with uh, with our guy, Verno. We're going to take an argument that we had on text and we're just going to bring it to the podcast. That is up next. All right, House. We're bringing in our friend Chris Vernon from The Mismatch from Grizzlies pregame and halftime shows. It always cracks me up to see you in a suit tie when I'm sitting in my underwear watching basketball. I feel, uh, I feel, I feel like I'm walking into a sneak attack. You're not. You're well, not yeah. at all. You know, it's not going to be a sneak attack. It's a, it's a front, it's a full on frontal attack. Yeah. We can, you, 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 know, attack. you know, oh, no. you know where we're coming from on. It's just unfair oh. that it's two on one. That's all. But you're, no. you're the man for you're up to it. I know. Yeah, you where's, are. where's my tag team partner? Who would this it is, be? Who would your uh, tag team partner even be? I, um, 
Jeez, Louise. I don't know. Kevin would turn on me. No, he Tony would... Allen. Do you have a tag team Tony, party? Uh, Tony, Tony Allen. Allen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd bring Tony to the party. That's for sure. Tony would kick our ass, too. Yeah, I'm um, afraid of Tony Allen. <laughs> he, he's a tough dude. He was one of those guys when Rough. he played. Those, those NBA players who talk the talk and they're the ones that walk the walk. And he's the one where it's like, no, no, don't actually go there with Tony. Like Stackhouse well, was like that, too. It's weird because I was thinking about this the other day. The league is actually going back that way. And I was thinking, you know, with as physical as it's gotten this yeah. year, is this going to open the door to where people are actually going to find value in defenders again? Because defenders can actually defend because those guys, it was like they just, they turned them into dinosaurs uh, so quickly with the pace and space and really not letting you put your hands on anybody that maybe... Maybe maybe the next group of guys, you know, the guys that can really defend, they're actually going to be able to find a spot in the NBA. I don't know. I wonder I don't know, if this if could save Marcus Smart's Tony career. Allen, you would tell him to be on the phone with the Denver Nuggets with that game circled. Was it November the 28th, the 29th? Oh, my goodness. Tell him tell him to audition. They they need a, a, a one more tough guy. They you can use fine. one more tough guy on the Nuggets for that game. Uh, coming up uh, <laughs> against uh, who? Who is it? Miami, Miami. It's, yeah, right. and especially with Porter Jr. injured. I mean, that's they're right. Down, they're down one really tough guy. <laughs> I was thinking for that game, it would be funny if they remember in Slapshot for the final game when that team signed all the all the goons for the one yep. game. It was like here's Ogie Oglethorpe. Um, <laughs> if uh, if Denver did the version of that, they just brought it like Kendrick Perkins is back. And he's angry. You think that's why they gave my guy Bull Bull a little clock last night? I yeah, mean, maybe they did. They're at, getting ready. At, the, at the least, he's got mega reach. Yeah. You know? Um, Verna, we brought you on because we had a text thread where we <laughs> arguing about Ben Simmons like we always do. And yeah. you come in hot on the Daryl Morey piece of this. And I respect it. I love it. It's a great zag. As you know, I, I appreciate and treasure the zags. As much as anyone yeah. with a podcast, with I not that I read anymore, a column, whatever. The the art of the zag, it's really hard to pull off. You really have to buy into it and believe it. And there has to be some substance behind it. And you made a great case. So let's talk it out. Do your zag on Daryl Morey. Well, yeah. So here's the thing. It's not really that much of a zag. I just feel like, look, I'm going up against the Daryl Morey fan club in that text thread. <laughs> You guys, you guys, you guys are united in this. I think the my only thought on the whole Ben Simmons fiasco is that both sides are at fault here. That you can't go and try to trade a guy, tell a guy that he is being traded, and then it, it, where he's to the point where he's house shopping in Houston, and this is literally the. First thing you've done, the first thing you've done when you got the job. So he knows right away, all right, this new guy, he doesn't want any part of me. He doesn't want me here. And then you play out the season. You got the best record. It all goes wrong uh, when it comes down to the end. You don't really obviously build some kind of relationship with the guy all along the while for six months to 12 months, all anybody's talking about is Ben Simmons trades or who could Ben Simmons go to or when is Daryl going to make the big Ben Simmons move? And so the guy's dangling out there for the entire year 
And then it gets to the playoffs. He has his debacle in the playoffs. Really, everybody laid it on Ben, whether that was right or not. Everybody laid it on him, even though Doc Rivers' teams have wildly underperformed over and over and over again in the playoffs. It's all Ben Simmons' fault. And so then Joel Embiid says what he says. Doc Rivers says what he says. And then Ben Simmons is like, you know what? I don't want to go through a whole nother year of this. I don't want to live this life anymore. Just let you don't want me here. I don't want to be here. Let's go our separate ways. Let's go. And then you get the, well, he's not trading him unless he could get Brad Beal. He's not trading him unless he could get Damian Lillard. He's not trading him. And so everybody seemingly knows what Daryl Morey thinks all the time. All the time. It is what Daryl Morey thinks. And all the while, finally, Ben Simmons said, F you. And that, to me, it's not, the way they've handled it is obviously the not, not the right way. I would never defend the way he and his management team have, have played this. On the other hand, like, I think Daryl Morey should have traded him a long time ago. And I think he's got too big of an ego. Now this is all ego, both sides. And I think he's got too big of an ego to move him for what he could be moved for now. Because in the end, once upon a time, he was really close possibly to getting James Harden. At least close enough that they told Ben. And so now, fast forward all this time, and he's going around and the deals get worse and the deals get worse. And the deals get worse because, of course, they get worse. Now, Simmons is playing it the way he's playing it, um, not helping his stock at all. And you're in a spot where you say, all right, well, if it takes four years, it takes four years. I don't see a scenario in which the price of doing business to get Ben Simmons is going up. But I also think there's probably a level of pride where it's like, well, I can't. I can't I can't take a CJ McCollum and Robert Covington and some picks deal at this point. Not when we've been talking about James Harden and Damian Lillard and Brad Beal and I've said we're only going to trade him for a difference maker and I don't know. I don't I don't see how he all of a sudden ends up with some kind of a great deal. I think he should have traded him, you know, in the offseason, at the draft or before free agency, whenever because at this point I don't see how I, you know, both sides have been screwed up in this deal. And I don't think just Daryl Morey throwing double birds to clutch, which I feel like everybody is so happy that he stood up to clutch. He stood up to player empowerment. And so he threw those double birds and good on Daryl. I, I don't think it served him well in terms of getting a return at this point. So I, I don't think the way, you know the the Sixers have handled this should be celebrated. I think this is this is not good for Ben. It's not good for the Sixers, and it's not good for the league. All right, solid case, House. I I thought he made some good points. The fundamental I disagreement I have is everything you just laid out insinuates that there was a deal they could have taken in June, July, or August that would have made sense for them, and. I have not heard of one deal that comes even close to the value of what Simmons had, who was until the playoffs last year, a top 22, top 23 guy, 
arguably the best defensive player in the league under a long-term contract, which makes him valuable. And when he played with Embiid, they were really good defensively. And I, I, I just, it's not, I'm against the three dimes for a quarter trade just in general. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the trade was. So if you were telling me, hey, man, because there were rumors that they might have been able to get Darius Garland and Kevin Love for him. Or maybe they could have gotten Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert and some kind of package. Yes, I, like I, that, but I'm not doing whatever. that. I'm, I'm out on that. I'm not I'm not doing that. If you're talking about Darius Garland and Kevin Love, if that was really on the table, and I don't know, I'm not reporting that, don't aggregate me. But that, that was a buzz that, that Cleveland was making a play for him and maybe that was yeah. that was it. If that was really on the table... Now I have real regrets if I'm Philly because I, I think Garland is, I he's really emerged as I think one of the leap guys this year. And plus you would have gotten loves back, love back in there with the contract tradable um, as an expiring. Well, and there's a lot of conflicting, it, like, let's go back. There's a lot of conflicting reports on the Houston stuff. Right. And there were reports after that. Darryl Are you talking really, about the Harden trade? Yeah. That he regretted it, that it was always look, go find the better deal. I'll give you Ben Simmons, but I'm not adding in Tyrese Maxey or Tybal. They all had these stuff other in there. Guys. They're, no, they're, how I think that Tybal was in there and some picks. It wasn't just Simmons for Harden. But when Brooklyn came over the top, yes. then it was like, oh, no. And so now it's like, to me, in retrospect, you sit back and you go, this is what the value was, or at least we had talked about this very seriously, and I can't be doing Malcolm Brogdon for Karis LeVert, uh, you know, deal. Yeah. But the truth is, Ben Simmons' value was a lot higher then than it is now. The Ben Simmons value has gone down precipitously well, and continues well, to go down. Who Who is trading for him? Really? Well, let's talk about that one second. I have a question for House. House, was da- I think Daryl's biggest mistake and the one that I cannot defend him on was thinking that Tillman Fertitta was going to trade with him. Because he did the whole thing. I'm going to leave. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm done with Houston. I'm out. I'm going to spend time with my family. And from what I heard, there was only one team that he wasn't allowed to go to. But otherwise, otherwise he was out. And whether how, how genuine that was, I don't know. But within a couple of weeks, all of a sudden he was in Philly. And I don't think Fertitta was ever actually trading him. James Harden is my take. And the Nets... I think they were waiting. They were waiting for the Nets, for Durant to really push those guys to do it. And then finally they end up throwing in Jared Howland and picks. But House, was that was that the big Daryl mistake? Can we criticize him on that, thinking that Houston would trade him, that he could just leave, go to Philly, and then take James Harden with him, basically? I, it's impossible to know. We there, There's only one way to know that, and that's to sit in a room with Tillman Fertitta and Daryl Morey and cross-examine those two and see which one of them feels like is more truthful. Guys, I mean, wait, Sloan Conference? Sloan Conference. No, February. No. Let's do it. You know what? You guys are going to be so depressed <laughs> because if I would have known we were doing this pod, I could have asked him last night. Tillman Fertitta flew into Memphis and showed up at the game. Why? Wow. Last night. Well, I, actually, I, I have plenty of good reasons why. Memphis ribs would be one reason. He probably, he mm. probably, I don't know. He wanted to see a 40 point drubbing. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know why he showed up, but it, it was weird when he walked in. Everybody yeah. was like, what is he doing here? Yeah. Like, the, the team didn't even know mm. he was well, showing that, up. He just showed all, up out of nowhere. 
That all sounds weird. very consistent with, you know, yep. what, what what that owner is all I, about and some of his legacy, you so, know, previous so to being th- an owner and all that kind of thing. So so here's the thing. Here's the question. Let's just forget the Harden thing and we'll forget that completely. Okay. Let's just fast forward. To me, Ben Simmons' value right now is worse than it was, even if you want to say there wasn't a ton on the table and wasn't a good trade. Whatever there was, there was, right? So after after the uh, playoffs and they lose to the Hawks, that's a bad deal. No way around it, right? And he, but I don't let, think they could have traded him in June between the playoffs and the draft with why? how he played it. Just from how he looked in the playoffs, I think everybody needed to kind of take a step back and All right. wonder what say, happened. Let's say you get to the draft, then you get to free agency, then you get to, you know, you get to the point where it, the demand becomes public. Up until that point, it's a little different deal. Because I think if I'm trading, aren't you saying, like, what are you going to do? Like, what, what leverage do you have? Your guy's not playing for you, and he wants out. Like, I don't see how he gets a good deal for Ben Simmons at this point. I but really but could you, but I don't know how you get a good deal from House. Do you, is it any different than July when you have a guy going, I want out, and now everybody in the league knows you have to trade somebody? You're not getting a good offer at that point. What is the, what's the historical precedent of a team being in the power seat in the two weeks after their player says, get me the fuck out of here? Well, here's, here's, what, here's what I'd say to that. When you just stepped on house. No, the, it's fine. Stop I want to hear from Verno. You're Russell Westbrook in house. Hey, you just clear it out. Hold on now. Verno I'm, gets high usage. It's two on one. Verno gets I, high usage it's, here. T- it's two on one <laughs> with a frontal attack. It is a frontal right, attack. This is right it's on true. my front. And so, look, there was original reporting that after the season, and this was not made public, that Rich Paul met with the Sixers and they said, We'll help you. Let's yeah. find a trade. Let's yeah. find a trade. At that point, you say, let's work together. Like, even if you don't have leverage, guess who does have leverage? That guy. He's got leverage everywhere. All over the league, he's got leverage. So if Rich Paul came to you and said, you're better off without him, he's better off without you, let us help you, let's find a deal, you get it done then. And you would have had that help. Instead, now... He's not helping you. You guys are adversaries now, for God's sakes. But he's Berno, saying, if, if you think Ben's lying, say he's lying. You know, If, if the re- that report is true and Rich Paul did go to the Sixers and they did have that sound, sober, right-headed, rational conversation, then the move by Simmons to publicly announce that he is not going to show up for training camp is puzzling. To say but that, the was, least. that was after What's, the fact. That was after I the cooperation. Yeah. I understand, but what what happened between those two moments? If they were in a cooperative mood, now I I I think Daryl's hand was screwed by the combination of Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid in the heat of the moment, coming out and saying what they said. That that put Daryl in an impossible position right then and there. The playoffs are over. Everybody saw with their own two eyes what happened with Simmons and then Doc and and Embiid basically created the the environment that was going to be very difficult for for Simmons to 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 navigate right with I mean, the, the with the Philly fans to, following their lead had to have gone behind the channels and said look we know what those guys said it was heat of the moment we love you please come play him playing is it was his best leverage all through this it continues to be his best leverage and I, I don't agree with the idea 
that it's a, a, a diminishing asset. And the reason I don't is because the NBA market is a dynamic market. It's not a fixed market. It changes on a weekly basis. It changes on nearly a daily basis. We will know from, you know, all the way up to December the 15th, which is the first kind of interesting date on the calendar when all of the free agents from the summer are eligible to be, uh, you know, assets in, in, in trades. That will be one kind of uh, moment. And then between December the 15th and the trade deadline, we'll have a whole nother set of, of opportunities to examine. But in that time frame, it's kind of a free option for Daryl, right? Just sit tight, see how the league develops. Some teams are going to, to, to feel like they need to be buyers and they might, their, their point of view on who is uh, uh, an eligible candidate for, for Ben Simmons is going to change because of whatever's going on with their, their local situation. Well, December 15th is the date. Yeah. That's when all the contracts that you sign in the summer yep. become tradable, like and extensions too, like somebody like Marcus Smart. This is what I don't understand. I don't understand how he has leverage. Everybody says, well, yeah, then all of these things become available. Why, why am I trading a star to get Ben Simmons? If I'm another team, I'm going, what if he doesn't like it here? Then I got to put up with all this bullshit? Like, no way. I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah, but that, like, that, what, now you're talking about, that's a different calculus, right? Now you're talking about the devil that you know versus the devil that you don't know. Like, at some point, Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota, like that that relationship, I we just keep watching them pile up losses. And you sent a, a, a note, you know, yeah. the other night. Right. About what, what kind you. of a winning character does that guy possess year after year after year? But could he in a different kind of situation flourish where he, you know, the whole thing is different? And maybe the the, the Timberwolves looking at their situation, we oh. want to build a young team. We want a younger team. Let's go young. Let's buy ourselves five years right here. And let's just see if we can be a run and gun team. The guy from, you know, Chris Finch from from Toronto might have a, a, a team character in mind. And maybe the two sides at at, at, at the T-Wolves say, KAT, we've loved you. You've been a, a beloved son here. It's time to move on. KAT would welcome it, wouldn't he? And but Ben the re- Simmons the, is like, here's the opportunity. That's got to be a three-teamer if that happens. The other thing is that guy had a affair with his secretary or whatever. <laughs> and and Daryl's boy, he's gone. <laughs> He doesn't right. get to do yeah, that deal anymore. I don't. Who, who knows? I'm just. This, I'm talking about hypotheticals out there about situations changing on the ground. In in, in the like, what, what do you think is going on in Portland? You think they're well, happy there? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But I will say this: if I'm bringing in, if again, I'm looking at it through the prism of I'm bringing in Ben Simmons. Okay, and what if he doesn't like his situation here? We see what links he has gone to now to not play and to get out of this situation, which, by the way, they were the number one seed. They're the number one seed. So, again, I've never made an excuse for the way Ben Simmons acts. I wouldn't trade for him. That's why I think you guys are all goofy for talking about how smart Daryl has been. How on earth? earth does he attain leverage how on earth does this get better if you tell me all right let's say let's pontificate because this could happen let's say a star doesn't become available you've already laid down the 
the, the, the law, right? A difference maker. If it takes four years, I'm getting a difference maker. Fine. Let's just say a star is not in the cards. It doesn't materialize. There's not, there's not one out there that you can trade for. There's not another team that wants to deal with this. What, what's going on right now? All right. Now what? I have an answer. I have an answer for you. Okay. I don't think Daryl ever wanted to trade Ben Simmons. Oh, give me a break. No, no, I really don't. Come on. I, I really don't. I don't Good think he did. That, you don't believe that. No, no, it, it, I do. Bruno, and here's in why. the context of, of what, of this episode, he clearly wanted to trade Ben Simmons for Harden. We know that he, to be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. in the current, under the, the, the situation that, that developed post playoffs, I think Bill's right. He no, no, listen, to trade him Ferno. for anybody that's good. Ferno, listen, listen. Here's why I don't think he wanted to trade him. And we know this for a fact because I know from some reporting I did and some the other people at the ringer, he went to every team and just asked for their best player. He made crazy. He went to the Celtics and asked for Tatum. Okay. The Celtics so, were never trading Tatum for Ben Simmons. But if Simmons. you don't want to trade him, is that what you do? Yeah. I think Why? you do. I think Why? you go to each team and then you say to, you go back to Clutch. What? That doesn't no, listen, make any sense. Listen, he goes back to Clutch and Clutch is like, I, did you go? Did you try to trade Ben Simmons? He's like, yeah, I think he's one of the best 18 players in the league and I'm not trading him unless I get a player of his caliber back and nobody wanted to trade for him. So let's figure this out. And then it escalated after that. I think the mistake he made, if I, if, <laughs> Yeah, Listen, but you can't run around trying to trade him to everybody. But he didn't try. He tried to trade him for players who were as good as him. What he wasn't trying to do is try to trade him for Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert. But if, if, but if I've got, look, bro, if I've got a girlfriend and I go around and I go to the bar and there's a million hot chicks out there and I say, hey, you want to go out with me? Hey, you want to go out with me? <laughs> they hey, requested a trade. What's he going to do? And, yeah. then I, and then I come back to my girl be like, actually... You know, yeah. But I, your it, girl, what if your girl rejected, requested the trade? No, yeah. if, any, if any of them w would have said yes, then yeah, I would have I would have left with them. But I guess I'm stuck with you. So let's work this, this is, out. This is what house is and like no, in college. She would say, <laughs> no comment. And she would say F you, which is exactly what Ben Simmons did. Berno, the one F you. The one thing I will say about there being teams out there that would would want Simmons where you know Simmons is attractive to them that's up to clutch that's the test of Rich Paul and the and the the clutch mafia to find those teams and I, I think those teams do exist I think there are teams and situations out there where clutches influence with those teams and and look Ben Simmons has a good resume he has an all-star resume that combination I think like Every team believes that a player will be different with them. Look at look at what Russell Westbrook's been doing. Wow, he's been traveling all around. Like the the Lakers think that he's going to be good for them. I'll tell um, you this: the Celtics would trade for Ben Simmons. They're just not putting Brown or Tatum in the deal. Those guys are off limits. Well, but they would trade for him. But there's difference makers. That's what he says. He's laid down the law and said, "I'm only getting a difference maker." But here's here's the thing, though: he does have a time clock with Embiid. You can't throw away an entire Ben Simmons season where you don't trade him. So they're going to have to trade him between mid-December and mid-February. And everybody knows that. Everyone knows that, which is why he's got to wait for a team to be gone. Like, look at the Portland situation. Lillard had a terrible start. The team has no mojo at all. It looks like it's heading in the wrong direction. And meanwhile, Maxi for Philly has been fantastic. 
in a Maxi and Simmons for Lillard trade seems a lot more fair than it did five months ago, right? Because Maxi, it's like, whoa, you're giving up Maxi? That's a real asset. That guy's good. You so, can get you can get a better deal for Damian Lillard, though. If you probably I'm in could. The, if I'm in the business of shopping Damian Lillard, I can do better than that. So you're you thinking like Sh- Shake Milton? Who else? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying with another team. I'm what, saying with another what's team. What's Memphis's offer? Make us a Memphis go. offer for Simmons. Can no, you give I us mean, one? The, no? you, you, I mean, for for Ben Simmons? Yeah. Well, there's no... Look, your difference maker in somebody like that's eyes is Jaron Jackson, whose best, his best role is going to be playing center. You have a center, so it's not a natural fit next Ooh. to next to Embiid. And, well, wait, hold on, wait a and second. And you're never yeah. giving up Morant. I wait, think wait, this wait. is a wonderful, Memphis is a wonderful destination. Wait, I'm not kidding. First of all, Jaron Jackson makes, I they'd have trouble trading him with the extension because the contracts get all screwed up. But I do think he's the kind of asset they'd be looking at for Philly. I just don't know if Memphis can give up Jaron Jackson's four rebounds a game. Like, how do you oh, replace how dare that? You, how dare you got to. You got to. You, you So many guys are have to chip you, in. You, it's you like would, one a quarter. You would give your left testy for Jaron Jackson Jr. Wait, would he I mean, rebound? I'd give it. A, can he get eight rebounds a game? He stands out. He does like every other power forward. They stand out at the perimeter now. <laughs> it, That's what just, everybody does. Wait, what's the difference between him and Joe Harris? Uh, oh, how dare you? What? <laughs> Has what? It, does he go 20 feet within the rim? What, what, what does what that guy of, do? One of them just turned 21 years old. Great. How long are you making that excuse? Come on. get Grab hey. a rebound, Jared Jackson. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Is he aware Look, he can grab the ball when hey. it's up in the air? Do not take your I look, House, do not let him take his Celtics aggression out on me. <laughs> do not, do you worry uh, about your team. Yeah. You don't man. worry about me. You don't worry about it me. It would be it would be nice to see uh Jason Tatum on the free throw line. I mean, I would yeah. just, you know, maybe three times a game, four times a game. It'd you be can, nice if Jason hey, Tatum got better got, one of these years. Look, just, you guys got you guys gotta tell me. All right, do you think that Daryl is gonna end up with a star? For Ben Simmons, I think Maxi would have to be involved. I think that's the that's the path. I don't think if Simmons straight up with picks, I don't think gets him anybody who also isn't flawed. Would be my take. What do you think? Maxi's a clutch guy too, by the way. Yeah, I, th- what do you- I think it's unlikely. I understand what Berno means when he has says star, and I think it's unlikely that it will be a star. I think it will be like two very good players and an excellent draft pick. That's that's what I think is two two players that will be very complimentary to the way that the, the Sixers are built that will maximize their opportunity to go deep in the playoffs. And as we discussed with my Washington Wizards, depth matters. Depth matters. And especially we know this to be true come playoff time. So two really good assets plus a draft pick could be enough, I would say. That hey hey then you better rip it, Bill, because that is quarters. You said I don't do it for quarters. He literally just described quarters. You cannot tell me that Daryl Morey is the smartest man in the room if he trades the thing for whatever two nickels and a quarter. I would keep him. I'd rather have him than do the. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, Verno, we can hear you on the mismatch house. <laughs> we can hear you on uh, fairway rolling. Yeah, we're, As, we have a small hiatus, but I'm on the Friday Ringer Gambling Show. Is Fairway Rolling officially, when does it come back? 
uh, January-ish. That's, that's you right. know, well, we we'll give ourselves permission to uh, have emergency pods if Tiger comes out and plays, you know, in the Bahamas in two so weeks a, or whatever. No, that's I, not no, happening. All right. right. Ringer yeah. Gambling Show Fridays for House. Good to see you guys. <laughs> see you. Thanks, Verdo. Warren Sharp is here. You can hear him on the Ringer Gambling Show on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On Wednesdays, he's with the Terminator, Ben Solak, and they talk in some language that I think I mostly understand, but it's just like the language of people who have surpassed us mortals with football knowledge. Um, why don't we have a best football team this year, Sharp? We've got a number of great ones. Best one, I think there's a variety of factors. I think defenses made some big adjustments to take away what some of the very best offenses were doing in the past. We're talking like the Chiefs and the Bills. Um, and these offenses knew that heading into the offseason. The teams are going to try to figure out how to slow down what they like to do. They're going to play more of this defensive coverage that includes dropping these two safeties back and playing the shell defense and keeping everything in front of them. Um, but I think they've been a little bit slow to counterpunch and to figure out what to do from there. It's been a little bit of a shock to their system in both cases. These were two of the very best offenses in the NFL. I mean, the Bills, 20 plus first downs every single game last season. No other team in NFL history had been able to accomplish that. And the Chiefs, of course, two straight Super Bowls. So uh, defenses are figuring out different strategies to defend these great offenses. And it's now going to be a matter of making the adjustments down the stretch of the season. And that's why I think this year is so fascinating because what we've seen to date is, is fine. It's been very exciting and interesting for a while. There were no big upsets. Now we've seen a few. So at least that adds to the intrigue. This stretch run, Bill, is going to be absolutely insane. I think there's going to be separation from some of the greatest teams. They're going to make some adjustments. I think it's going to be really exciting uh, throughout the rest of the season and into the postseason. So when you say the great offenses, and you would have said going into the year, Casey and Buffalo would be in that conversation. I think Dallas entered the conversation, and then they got shut out uh, by Denver who then the next week got picked apart by an inferior quarterback with inferior receivers. And I'm looking at it. I bet on Denver last week. And it's just like, all right, now we have entered the there's no rhyme or reason from week to week stage of the season, which has now been three weeks long. There was some predictability with the high favorites. I think at one point, what was it, like 27-0 and 0 with the favorites in that like six to nine point range. Then it flipped and it's flipped and flipped and the underdogs have basically been hitting over 50%. But the the Denver, that sequence of Denver shutting out Dallas and then getting crushed by Philly, to me was the weirdest thing that happened this season. What was the weirdest thing for you this season? The weirdest result that you're just like, I don't understand that. That breaks my brain. Oh, wow. Um... I think that one was close because I did not think that there would be a chance that we would see the the uh, Cowboys lose that game. I think another one to me, if I'm looking back, I'm trying to pull up some of the uh, prior results here. Another one to me would be the Rams' performances over the last couple of weeks offensively. Yeah, uh, just just in general, because I think the Tennessee Titans, especially without Derrick Henry, are a very predictable style of offense. You can let them go ahead and try to run the ball on first down like they want to do. They're not going to have very much efficiency. 
You have to figure out how to block up that front four so that they're not pressuring you and then deliver the ball over the top. But, you know, the the funny part was, and I actually mentioned this on the Monday show on the gambling show, which you guys need to be subscribing to the Ringer Gambling Show. It's a lot of fun with these three shows a week. But to Vernon yesterday on the Monday show, I said, I'm looking forward to betting against this quote unquote super team of the Rams the next couple of weeks because everybody's talking nonstop about how they've built themselves this juggernaut that can't be defeated. And so the 49ers were absolutely the right side last night. uh, And that was pretty clear and obvious. But I just think Sean McVay's inability to figure out what to do offensively, coupled with the fact that Matthew Stafford has lo- delivered results. I don't want to say he looks like, but has delivered results, particularly on a down-to-down situation, that aren't that much different than some of the throws and the decisions that Jared Goff had been making. And it's like, what, what are we doing here? We got sh- Matthew Stafford, the hand-picked guy to go out and win Sean McVay this Super Bowl that he hasn't been able to win because Jared Goff was the reason he couldn't get it done. And now we've seen a couple straight weeks against teams that, I mean, the Titans now have the best record in the NFL, but I don't think anybody's saying that they're the best team in the NFL. And the 49ers were backsliding completely, and the Rams just have not looked right offensively whatsoever the last two weeks. Hot take. I don't think Stafford's healthy. He looks super banged up to me, and this is a guy who's had a lot of a lot of dinks and dunks in his body over the last 10, 12 years. And that was the big question with him, right? What are we getting when we get Matthew Stafford? We're getting a guy who got the shit kicked out of him in Detroit for an entire decade. And what, you know, how is he going to evolve as he hits his mid thirties? To me, he does not look like, uh, he does not look spry. He does not look, even somebody like Brady, who's 44, looks like he's in good shape, good health. He looks like he's physically good, which has made his last couple weeks so strange. Like he just hasn't been accurate. And people are like, oh, he doesn't have Gronk. He doesn't have... Antonio Brown's like, all right, well, he still has Godwin and Evans and Tyler Johnson's pretty good and Brate's okay, and but he, he just doesn't look accurate to me. Stafford doesn't look healthy to me, which I think is the difference. Maybe I'm overthinking it. It could be. I mean, look, the defenses that they've played have been respectable, that's for sure. The Titans' defense is exceeding my expectations in terms of how beat up their secondary was, and yet they're continuing to perform well against respectable offenses. Um, the 49ers, this is a team that I've been very down on what Kyle Shanahan has been able to deliver uh, for the 49ers. Your hero. Years. Your hero, he's, Kyle he's, Shanahan. He's really he's, let you down. He's let me down, but it hasn't been that unsurprising because he's let me down from his ability to win games, but this is something that we knew before. His ability to design offenses that can have success in a non-traditional manner where the modern NFL is these three wide receivers and we're going to attack you through the air. And he can just flip to a completely different style of offense that plays really well to what Jimmy G can excel with. That is something that I always knew that Kyle can do. And he's one of the reasons I like him as a play caller and an offensive mind. But his ability to bring a team together to actually win games has been lacking, um, but he really matches up well. He does really well against Sean McVay. I mean, these two guys used to work with one another. Those games are always must-watch TV, so uh, that that was not that surprising. I'll just say that uh, in terms of that result. I was backing the 49ers there. But you're surprised. I had the Niners, too. It saved, it saved a pretty 
pretty lackluster gambling week for me and the Niners saved it at the tail end. Um, are you surprised by the Bills' relative impotency compared to the defenses that they've been playing? Like six, six points against the Jaguars is almost a cry for help. I'm going to say one thing here before you answer. Is it possible they just only have one above average skill position guy? Like, other than Diggs, do they have a guy who's above average out of all of their weapons? And maybe that's part of this. And you look at some of these other teams, I don't know if their offense is really, from a skill standpoint, that different. Like, is there is there skill, are their skill guys better than the Patriots guys? I'm not even sure. I actually like the Patriots running backs way more. I like Kendrick Bourne as like a second receiver more than anyone the Bills have. I like Hunter Henry. I, I just don't know if there's much of a difference. And I'm wondering, did we overrate the Bills talent a little bit? Um, so John Feliciano's injury along the offensive line, who plays a key part in setting protections and making adjustments. He, his first game out this season was against, you can probably guess which team, the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> right. And immediately like that offensive line was unable to pick up the blitz and Josh Allen was under tremendous amounts of pressure. They need him back. Uh, this is not an offensive line that can afford to lose players. It's such a different offensive line than your offensive line with the Patriots because you guys can run block really well. The Bills offensive line is built to pass block and it does not do as well when those guys are called to run block. And that's why even though the Bills have been, see, the Bills have wanted to try to change up a little bit. When you have a team like the Bills, like the Chiefs, even like the Eagles, this season through the first like six, seven weeks, defenses played these three teams with the fewest men in the box on average on early downs. They just said, try to run it. We don't care if you try to run it. You guys only want to pass the ball. Right. We're daring you to run the ball. And so none of those teams, with the exception of the Eagles, really had the O-line that was going to get out there and try to run block with success and trusted the efficiency that the running game could deliver as compared to what the passing game could deliver. The Eagles, on the other hand, are like, look, we've got a great offensive line that can run block and Hertz is fine, but he's nowhere near Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. Like who cares yeah. if we run the ball a few more times? Like it's not going to hurt our efficiency that much. And boom, you go up against, which is going to be interesting against the saints. And I'm kind of getting off the answer here, but with this, with the saints, such a great run defense, the, Eagles have been able to run the ball against three very bad run defenses over the last three weeks. Now they have to go up against the number one run defense in the NFL. What will they try to do this week? Big question. Yeah. But getting back to the Bills, the true test for the Bills in terms of, uh, well, let me answer your immediate question. I think the Bills' skill position players are more than adequate when you've got a quarterback, the level of Josh Allen being protected and playing at his level that we should expect. He doesn't have to be incredible. He just can't be terrible. And if he's playing what we expect him to be, this offense is putting up high 20s to low 30s per game on a given week. The mm. issue becomes, um, yeah, once if you can try to eliminate digs, th teams were trying to do that last year, uh, but they were they're playing this Bills team a little bit differently. And I think Dayball has been trying to run the ball a little bit more to try to 
balance things out. And it's actually put them in some difficult situations, especially if you look at some of the second down decisions from a play calling perspective and how frequently they are choosing to run the ball in like second and long. It's still not like egregious, but it's at a higher rate than the NFL average. And it's something that I think they need to make some adjustments on because this stretch that they're about to go on, and I mentioned this, maybe it was on the Friday show, well, uh, on the gambling show. If you look at, uh, Bill, the Bills offense from week two, after they played the Steelers, who have the 13th best defense, they have played from week two to week 10. So all of the games since. Only one team that even ranks 20th or better defensively, and that was the Tennessee Titans. Now, yes, they put up 31 points, lost that game, probably could have won that game. But all these other defenses that they are playing are 25th Miami Dolphins twice, the 30th ranked Washington football team, the 28th ranked uh, Kansas City Chiefs, the Jaguars, the Jets, the Houston Texans. Terrible, terrible. Now they're about to enter the stretch for six weeks where they are doing nothing but playing top 10 off top 10 defenses. The Colts rank number 11. So that's the only one outside. Of, then you got number three Saints, number five Patriots, your Patriots twice. That's going to determine the AFC East, in my opinion. Then they've got a game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who ranked number nine defensively, and a game against the Carolina Panthers, who ranked number six. So Buffalo was not looking great to me offensively the last three weeks. Now you're talking about going up against these top 10 defenses for six straight weeks. They need to figure some things out and do so very quickly if they're going to have any success or hope at looking good against these defenses. Make the case to me that Buffalo is better than New England in 2021. What is better about Buffalo than the Patriots at this point? We, the Patriots, to me, seem like a more balanced team. I think they have a better coach. I think they have more ways they can win game to game. Their arrow is pointing up. They can run and pass. And really, the only thing you would say, if, in my opinion, if you're making the Buffalo case is, in one game, I'd rather, I'd trust Josh Allen over a rookie QB would be the default. What what else am I missing? Because I've watched 10 weeks of the season. I think the Patriots are better than the Buffalo right now. Neither team has been tested with great defenses that they've played for the most part this season. The Patriots have played the fifth easiest schedule of opposing defenses and the eighth easiest schedule of opposing offenses. The Bills have played the third easiest schedule of opposing defenses and the third easiest schedule of opposing offenses. The strength of schedule that both of these teams were playing, and we knew this entering the season, has been terrible. Because yep. you look at the Jets and the Dolphins, plus they're playing games against the Houston Texans and sprinkling in um, like the Carolina Panthers or the Atlanta Falcons for you guys. Like these are teams that are not very good in general. So we haven't really seen them tested. When we are heading into the winter months in the Northeast, I love the fact that you guys can execute what I think is a very dynamic game plan where. The defense won't know, is it going to be a run or a pass? Yep. And they have to respect both equally because the runs are actually productive. For Buffalo, the difference is that the passing attack is much more explosive and aggressive. But they don't have the balance that the defense really has to respect the run. Dayball can call some run plays to mix it up. But those run plays are not going to be nearly productive enough 
to make the defense really scared. And I still think defenses will be playing the Bills and say, go ahead. You've been trying to do this all year. Keep trying to run the ball if you want to. We're still playing the pass and going to try to limit the upside of the pass. And we're still going to try to rush Josh Allen and disrupt that passing attack. And you guys can try to run the ball if you want, but you're not going to have much success. The defensive side of the ball is very interesting because the Bills have the number one defense, the number one defense against the pass, the number three defense against the run. They have performed incredibly. But if you look at the quarterbacks that they've been playing, if you look at the offenses that they've been playing, it still is nothing really to write home about. And I think we're well, going to find on. out. You, you can't emphasize that point strongly enough. Roethlisberger, yeah. Tua, whoever the hell Washington's QB was at week three, Davis Mills, Mahomes, they, who when they, they were caught Mahomes in a funk. Yeah. Um, Tannehill is the best QB they've played just in terms of consistency this year other than Mahomes. Tua again, Trevor Lawrence, and then last week... Uh, Mike White. Mike Lotus himself, Mike White. That's a brutal crew. I have no idea if their defense is good. How do we know? We're going to find out right. over these next few weeks. We are. And that's why this game against the Colts sets up to be really intriguing because what do the Colts want to do this week? They want to try to run the football. They want to be balanced offensively. But if that game is close or they have a slight lead, Frank Reich, I mean, I like Frank Reich as a coach, but as an offensive, it's really weird. My thoughts on Frank Reich, he is a very creative offensive mind who really gets a lot out of his quarterbacks. He's worked with a bunch of them. They've always excelled under his system. He calls a lot of a variety of plays that tend to work against defenses. But from a conservative approach, when his teams get the lead on early downs, yeah, they're so, they just turtle up and shell up and just run the ball and hope that they can get into third and manageable and convert and then keep bleeding the clock. I'm going to be really interested to see that Colts secondary, the Colts defense, great against the run, bad against the pass. Injuries in the secondary. If the Bills are able to block up this Colts pass rush, throw the ball over the top, and they're favored by seven points, if they can get a lead here, then force the Colts to try to actually open up their offense the entire game and chase them, what does this Bills defense do? Is this Bills defense elite? I don't really even think the Colts offense is elite, but do they look really bad <laughs> against definitely Carson not. Wentz? No, Taylor, definitely not. Taylor's elite. I think Taylor's been one of the three most reliable running backs we've had. The Pats are in a great spot. Yeah. where they got Atlanta on Thursday. And granted, the Thursday night games are wonky every week. It's hard to trust anything. I ha I've made the smart decision not to bet any Thursday game, which I'm really proud of myself on. <laughs> but if they get through this and they go seven and four, there's some pressure now on the Bills in that Colts game where all of a sudden they could be tied with the Pats um, and then they still have the two left. And, you know, as you said, with the cold weather stuff, I didn't love what McDaniels, I didn't know what McDaniels, I was texting you and a couple yep. of people about it. Like, I don't know what McDaniels is doing. I don't know why he won't take the training wheels off Mac. I think some of it had to do with he didn't trust the offensive line. Didn't really know the team. He's been lights out the last couple of weeks. I got to say, he came, he came out of his coma. The stuff they did against the Browns was just fantastic. The opening drives they've had game after game. I think they've scored on six or seven straight opening drives. And they're kind of built for cold weather bang, smash mouth stuff, especially with Trent Brown back. And I like where my team's at. I really do. I, I think they have the most well-rounded AFC team. Mac is the question. Can a rookie QB do this? We've never seen, at least in recent history, a rookie QB light it up like this. I, I have to go back to 
you'd have to go back to Russell Wilson on the Seahawks that year or Roethlisberger with the Steelers. This was my case for picking them to win the Super Bowl. And I, I think people thought I was being a lunatic, but I, I really did feel like the AFC was wide open this year. But it's going to depend on can Mac come through for another two, two and a half months. What are you seeing from him so far? Well, I I for a little while was very frustrated that you guys weren't utilizing your two tight ends. Now, John, who has been hurt over the last couple of games, and so that's understandable, but the efficiency that you guys were getting when utilizing the two tight end sets, because what Belichick has always done, I mean, you obviously know this, is he's tried to do some things different with personnel. He's used a lot of fullback, 21 personnel, just do things that not as many teams are doing to make you adjust to figure out how to play them differently. And I really felt like with going out and acquiring these multiple tight ends that you stick those heavier personnel packages on the field, you force the defense with their personnel to adjust before the snap even occurs with their personnel on there to match up. And then you can run or pass out of it and you can motion and you can put Hunter Henry out, split out wide. You could do a lot of different things with those tight ends that right. make it fun for your offense and unpredictable for the defense. And I really felt like they weren't doing that enough. You know, I still think this is a team that, yeah, the Falcons game is going to be interesting Thursday, short rest for both teams. Um, but I mean, you look at their at their schedule. This is a team for the Patriots so far. You've either played great teams or shit teams. Like there is only one game that's been in between and that was the Chargers who ranked 16th in total efficiency. Otherwise, you're literally talking about nothing but bottom five teams. The, the Jets twice, the Texans, the Dolphins, the Panthers, and now the Falcons or top 10 teams, clearly the Bucks, the uh, Cowboys, the Saints, and the Browns. So the Browns were the only team that you were able to win. Now you're going to go up in a stretch. And this is where I really, that's setting up for so much that we're going to learn about these teams and their ability to kind of prove themselves over the next four weeks. Because after the Falcons, you've got the Titans, you have the best record in the NFL, two games against the Bills and one game against the Colts. That's your proving ground. That's your test. The last two games of the season, you got the Jags and the Dolphins again. Those are like... Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, that, that's like the take home test. Here's your real test that you're going to be going up against those four weeks. You got a bye week in between. That's another thing. It's been incredible to watch what they've been doing with Mac, despite not having a bye because rookie quarterbacks, there's so much that they can review. And I found that teams do not self scout nearly as much as they should when they've got another game on deck. A lot of teams go back and like, OK, let's sit down, let's break out the notebooks, let's review all the tape. What can we do from a self-scouting perspective? And it's like you need to be doing more of that over the course of the season. So I think that buy in week 14 is going to set you up perfectly. I like where you're at, where Mac Jones is at right now. I think he's great. I don't think they're asking him to do too much. Could they be asking him to do a little bit more? I think the answer is yes, and they're going to because they're going to need to in that stretch run against some really great uh, teams coming up here. And I think he's going to rise to the challenge. I'm curious, do you have you come around on the Nelson Aguilar signing? Do you still, I, I mean, I think you guys really wasted that one, but I love the tight ends that you brought in. And that's what I think you need to push. The diversity in the personnel groupings needs to continue to increase. I think we have not seen the ceiling of this Patriots offense. The defense is rounding into shape as it tends to do later in the season a lot of the time. Yep. 
I think this offense, we have not seen the ceiling. I think they can be better from a personnel deployment, from a game planning perspective. Mac is continuing to grow. And, you know, from a health perspective, you're just now starting to get some guys back that I think are going to help out too. Plus 370 to win the AFC East on FanDuel right now. I mean, look, you guys pretty have good two odds. games against the Bills. Yeah, those are pretty you, good odds. You've got um, great odds. I think that should be like plus 250. But on Aguilar, that one hasn't worked out. No. I think part of it is Mac has then the time to take a big drop and chuck it down field to him, really until this last game. And he tried once, and Cleveland had, Cleveland has good D-backs. They had him covered. And that was that. But I do think as the season evolves, because Mac has more time, I think that's going to be in play. But you didn't mention Kendrick Bourne, who was the other guy they signed, who's like the perfect Patriot guy. They, and there's so many similarities to the early 2000s Pats and this team, right down to how the 2001 season played out, where I think the 2001 Pats were one and three, and this team was two and four. They were both three and four at one point. They both started peaking in the middle of the season. And and got momentum. But Kendrick Bourne is like a classic David Patton, David Givens type of just like he does a lot of stuff. He's a good blocker. Um, so he's been good. Henry is the one that worries me because his history says it's hard to get five straight months out of him. When he's on the field, he's a force. And Mac, he's become Mac's security blanket. You can almost tell when Mac's going to throw it to him. Um what I want to see, I just want to see one week when they have all the weapons with the line, which could be Thursday. I don't know if Harris is going to play. But Ramondre, this draft they had, where they get Mac, they get Ramondre, and they get Barmore. And those might be three blue chippers, you know? And you think, like, you get one blue chipper in a draft, you're happy. They got three. And then the draft last year with Duggar and Uche, and they got two linemen out of it. So they were able to rebuild a little bit. And Aguilar's really been the only miss other than Jalen Mills, who's going to put my dad in the hospital. Frankly, I don't I don't want them to get Harris back for this Thursday. And I want them to, I mean, you don't want this. I, I'd be fine with it if they lose this game. I'd be fine if they barely win this game. because Which will probably be the, how it plays out. I want the Tennessee Titans to throttle the Houston Texans this upcoming week. And then I want the Patriots at home against the Tennessee Titans. I want the Patriots, that's next week's game, week 13, sorry, week 12. I want you guys to be at your full strength. I want that line to be really short and I want you guys to be able to throttle the Tennessee Titans at that point. Well, and that's an offense that we should be able to do well against because they're running backs. That That is now one of the worst running back casts in the league. And it looks like they missed on Julio Jones, which was... Yeah a big move for them to try to, that was basically their Aguilar move. Um, I'm not sure they have the firepower, but the thing with Tennessee, like we have these teams every year and I think Baltimore was a little like this too until last week. These teams that if, if they can hang around in the fourth quarter, they steal the game and Tennessee has been a steal the game team all season, which is, you know, out of the Belichick DNA, but um, they're, they, the other team can hang around and they can still pull one out of their ass. Wait, I have, I have, Two more nerdy questions for you, and then we'll go. Fourth down, Steph, you've been one of the leaders of this movement of going for it on fourth down. How great. This is a thing that has really evolved since the late 2000s and has now gone to another level. If you look at the fourth down stats, they're kind of shockingly good. Like you have almost two thirds of the teams are 50% and up on fourth down. You have 
some teams, like the Chargers are 11 for 17 on fourth down. Denver's 10 for 15. Tennessee's 10 for 14. The Jaguars are 10 for 17. But just for the most part, like the Vikings are 8 for 11. Casey's 7 for 11. Did you ever think we'd get where fourth down was 55, 60% across the board? Because that seems like where we're headed. Well, I think the reason that it has such a high conversion rate is because most of these are these short yarded situations where the conversion rate should be high. They're not the desperation fourth and seven. We're down in the fourth quarter by two scores. We got to go for it here. They're the plus EV when you should be going for it on fourth down because the alternative is either punting on fourth and two from midfield or kicking a 53-yard field goal on fourth and three. And, and so there are these short yardage, high leverage opportunities to convert. And there's so much at the offense's disposal in these short yardage situations because you can run, you can pass, your quarterback can run. Everything's open on the table for you there. Um, the key was not, would we be able to convert these? The key was always, can we get a team to attempt these? Because Mm. we know the conversion rate should be good enough. These are good spots to go for it. That's why we're trying to get the teams to attempt them. They just need to have a little bit more understanding of the expected win percentage that is gained, the higher win probability that is gained by making the decision to attempt these plays. And I think once you see that success, it's like a cascading wave, you know, like it it starts out not looking all that great, but once some teams start to do it and see the results, then more and more teams are kind of following them. And we're seeing this cascading wave increasing. The crazy thing to me, Bill, about this season is that I went back and looked. Every single team now has played at least nine games. Yeah. And we have seen the exact same number. I mean, it's uncanny. 3,630 third down attempts in the first nine games for every team this year as last year. The number is identical to the attempt, 3,630. We've also seen more fourth down attempts, as you mentioned, this is what we've tried to get teams to do, more fourth downs attempted this year than last year. And yet we've seen over 5% fewer first downs this season. We've seen 5,590 first downs converted this year compared to 6,317 over the team's first nine games last year. And there's a variety of factors that play into that. But I think you know, I don't know, we, we don't have the time or, or desire to like dig deep into the reasons why, but uh, the bottom line here is that it's part of the reason why we are seeing teams struggling with opponents, teams that should be better having a game that they're not as great because we're seeing still not as many third downs being bypassed and we're seeing teams perform a little bit worse overall on these third downs. And so it's making the games more competitive more exciting and just more opportunity for flings, uh, swings and fluctuations in the end result, particularly from an ATS perspective. We've seen dogs do really well this season. What about home teams? Home teams are like under 500 just to win, not even to get the spread. Right. Yeah. And same, same as, same as last year, which is what we, some people probably didn't think was going to happen this year once you got the home crowds back. Because last year, I think the home teams weren't nearly as good, but 
home field advantage was declining. And now all of a sudden you take away that crowd noise. You think, okay, yeah, of course that makes sense. Now in hindsight, some people were able to predict it ahead of time. Uh, we got on the front of the bandwagon. That's why we saw more points being scored. Look at the totals too, Bill. We, we've seen far more unders this year than last year. Last year was like, free money being given out if you're betting overs the first four weeks, if you were yeah. ahead of what was happening. And this year, I've hardly bet any overs. Most of the stuff that I've been betting has been unders. And I started back in the beginning of the season in doing that. And it's not as fun for people to bet on. It's not as fun for people to you tell them, okay, bet this team under. They're like, oh crap, I hate betting unders because you're like nervous the entire time. But um, it is absolutely the way that the league has been trending this season. I have a theory on this, and I don't know if I'm right, but we saw it happen in the NBA where everybody gravitated to a specific way to play basketball in the NBA, where it's like shoot threes, shoot as many threes as possible, find guys who shoot threes, move away from big men. And there was a stylistic thing that happened and everybody kind of moved that way. I wonder with football, because the emphasis the last 10 years has been on throwing the ball, running backs don't matter as much running back back Benny, find offensive linemen who can pass block, you know, and then on the, on the flip side, the defenses are watching this evolution of these pass heavy offenses. And then they start thinking, all right, how do I put my defense together to stop teams like this? And they're moving more uh, D backs, right? You saw in the draft last year, Sertan and Horn go ahead of Mac Jones and Justin Fields and even Devonte Smith and Michael Parsons, because it's so hard to find good cover people. I wonder if the defenses that are being built now are being built to stop these types of offenses. And at the same time, these offenses are only built to do one thing. So you see like a team like the Rams or the Bucks, where the Bucks should just clearly be ramming the ball down Washington's throat once Chase Young goes out. But they're kind of built just to throw the ball and then move the ball by passing. Same for the Chargers, where it seems like they could run Echo down people's throats, but they're always trying to like throw, 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 move the ball. I wonder if that there's like this weird disconnect now where the defenses have caught up to the offenses. I might be overthinking it. I don't know that they've caught up, um, but I do think that offenses in general league-wide are trending towards a more efficient style of play, just like in basketball, for how, what's the most efficient way to score. And so we figured out the way the places on the court to shoot from. For it's, the a, NFL, it's your fault, by the way. It's you and your brethren. You're telling yeah. all these people to throw on first down to well, just move, move all that stuff. And now these teams are doing it and they're forgetting how to establish the run. Unlike my well, Pats who still run. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't want, we don't necessarily want them to establish the run. What, what I still want teams to be able to do is to attack the weakness of the defense. First, you have to understand what the rules construct is and to game plan your build of your team to yeah. attack the weakness of what the rules are in the NFL. Then the second part is, is to, maximize that the tweaks for who you have on your roster, emphasize the personnel that you actually have. So you're attacking the rules construct, then you're building towards what you do well. Then you have to build towards what the defense that you're playing on that given week struggles to do. And what I yeah. feel like we've seen a lot of is defenses have been more willing to adapt their entire strategy change. Okay. For this week, we're going to change everything and do what the chiefs struggle to defend or yep. struggle to attack against. We haven't seen quite as much offense is just 
throw caution to the wind and attack that weakness of the defense as that third stage in the equation of how to win games the most effectively. What is the quickest path to victory is, yeah, you need to do what you do well in the rules construct, but attack this defense where they are the absolute weakest. And I think more teams are going to need to do that. But in terms of league-wide trends and whatnot, yeah, I mean, if you go back in preparation for the pot, early down target depth has absolutely decreased. It was 7.1 yards back in 2018. It's dropped to 6.9, 6.7, and now it's 6.3 this season. Um, First down explosive play rate has decreased as well. Uh, Third down target depth has increased. More teams are throwing it beyond the sticks because they know that that's more efficient. But if those plays, those plays, the further you throw the ball, the harder it is to actually complete those passes, which then does lead to more fourth down uh, uh, situations and fewer first downs, which we're seeing league wide. We're seeing more pre-snap motion usage, um, which we've been begging teams to like do more play action, do more pre-snap motion. But the teams still are trying to figure out how to make the most out of pre-snap motion. I've seen a variety of teams ramping up their pre-snap motion usage, but they're really seeing no efficiency that's being added. They're just doing it because they know it's smart to do, but they're not doing it in the ways that are going to hurt the defense or put them uh, in a bind or help the quarterback enough to identify things with that motion. So um, the offenses league-wide in general trends are improving towards more efficiency, but I do think we need better strategies on a week-to-week basis to attack weaknesses of defenses. It's a chess match. Feels like the yeah. defense has caught up a little bit this year. Last thing, and then we'll go. Let's make this quick. Vikings are plus two and a half against Green Bay at home this week. I know you're going to cover this on Wednesday and on Friday. Green Bay has been crushing everybody this year, gambling-wise. They've, they've just been, they've covered every week but two, maybe even every week but one. Minnesota is interesting because if you just look at the stats, it's it's pretty good. If you look at stuff like they're the only team in the league that's led by a touchdown every game this year and, and these things like that, they've gone toe-to-toe with teams. They can run. They can throw. They have a pass rush. They're kind of their own worst enemy. They have some shoot-ourselves-in-the-foot losses. Last week, they pulled one out. They have cousins who I hate betting against under, uh, betting on under any circumstances. But yet every year there's a team like this that the numbers say they're better than the record says and the eye test says. And then sometimes that will catch up and then they'll they'll kind of start moving in the second half of the season. I feel bad bringing this up because the Viking fans really hate themselves for loving this team probably more than any other franchise. But is there a chance the Vikes make a little run here? The, the last two wildcard spots in the NFC are wide open. And they do have talent. Like, I wouldn't be shocked if they beat the Packers this weekend. Is there, is there any reason to believe in the Vikes? Well, I mean, look, the stretch run for the Vikings is beautiful. If you look at it, they, they do play a tough game um, this week and next week against the 49ers. But you've got the Lions and two games against the Bears, plus a home game oh, against yeah. the Pittsburgh a home game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So it sets up well that like four of your last six opponents are pretty decent opponents to be drawing um, in those spots. The tough part is you are going to have to win some of these games. Now, like you said, they've gone on a little run. They beat the the, the Ravens and they beat the Chargers. And I think they have they... to win. They, they have to win this Packers game for this to be a real thing. They're home. Yeah, I think they got it. They, they, it just has to be a win or else like that's it. The ship is sealed. Yeah, and you have a team, obviously, offensively. My concern with their offense in this game 
is simply the fact that I do not believe in their play caller and their strategies offensively. I, I don't think they're I don't think they're creative enough. And they've self-admitted that Kubiak needs to try to do more things. He comes out last week and says, yeah, it would be, it would be nice. We need to try to get the ball more to Justin Jefferson. As if like he's a fan just right. commenting on home that he needs to get the ball. Like <laughs> he's the play caller. He could do that if he right. wants to. He's had weeks, months to do that. Um, why are you admitting that? Also, publicly? he's always open. Justin Jefferson's <laughs> open every time they throw to him. He's three yards ahead of the other guy. So they have the talent and Kirk Cousins, like, yeah, sh should he be making what he's making? How does he contribute? All those questions, great questions. Probably the answer is no, but he is a fine quarterback when he's put in the right situations and he can deliver the ball. I like this receiving core that they have and Me they've too. got a great run game. I mean, their top two receivers plus the running back. Most teams in the league would die to have that combination of Cook plus Thielen um, plus Jefferson. They're great. So they just and need Thielen, better play Thielen, calling. they don't even use some games. Yeah, they, I, I think they need better play calling. I think the Chargers and the Vikings have been the two most frustrating play calling teams this year. The Chargers, Chargers for sure. even we, the Patriots going against them and just, just you're relieved by the choices they make during the game. Like, oh, thanks for doing thanks for doing that. Really appreciate it. that last week. Thanks for never throwing the ball deep with Justin Herbert, who has a fucking rocket. What are you doing? It's ridiculous. I got to tell you, we kind of were worried about this before the start of the season. We liked the coaching change, the staff change, but we had major question marks about Joe Lombardi and they're coming out utilizing too much of the principles from the Saints, which was the short passing attack when they have one of the most talented arm quarterbacks it's in the ridiculous. NFL right now. And you see some of the passes that get tweeted out. Steven Ruiz tweeted one out. He writes for you guys now uh, with the, the great pass that he feathered in and layered over the defense last week. I mean, it's absurd what he can do. And yet they're trying to just coach him like he's a rookie, like he's he's fields or somebody that you just want to make sure doesn't make mistakes on early downs. And then let's deal with whatever comes on third down, make a play for us to keep the sticks moving, like attack aggressively. And we knew this going into the season and it's been nothing but frustration. If you look at their passing charts, it's just uh, uh, it's deplorable, quite well, honestly. Well, how about the Mike Williams thing where they're like, well, they just, you take out Mike Williams and then you you ruin the Chiefs, the Chargers offense because they have no deep passing game. It's like, well, I don't understand. Why can't they throw to Mike Williams anyway? Herbert can throw 60 yards downfield. Once a quarter, Mike Williams should just run a straight line and he should just chuck it, get a pass interference. I don't, I don't know what they're doing. All right, Sharp, we can hear you uh, on Wednesday with the Terminator, Ben Solak. We can hear you on Friday with House, the worst gambler in the world, who's actually having a half-decent season. And then on Mondays, too, with Verno. Uh, good to talk to you as always, my friend. I do want to mention two things, if I can, Bill. Go. A, I hope you guys are listening to this gambling show. Not only are we giving out nuggets and, and, and betting ideas and insights, but we're breaking down the games and the strategies that the coaches are going to be using, identifying mismatches and things that they can take advantage of each week. And it's a lot of fun. And there's three shows a week. So the Ringer Gambling Show, please check that out. And then over at Sharp Football Analysis, I just got to mention this, Bill. Yeah. This is our free week. Everything is free up oh. on sharpfootballanalysis.com. So you want all of our articles that are usually behind a paywall. You want all the betting picks. There's going to be a couple of totals this week that have a tremendous track record historically. Just go to sharpfootballanalysis.com and there's a banner at the top and you can sign up. Awesome. Good to see you as always. Thanks for having me. All right. My buddy Gus Ramsey is here. We've been friends for... 
four full decades at this point. One of the many things that uh, bonded us in the 80s was Rocky IV. Rocky IV has been re-released as a director's cut by 75-year-old Sly Stallone. And I have not seen it. I don't want to see it. I'm afraid to see it. Gus, of course, immediately went to the theater and saw it. And he's going to now try to convince me to see the director's cut. And we have not talked about this. There's been no planning. There's no outline. I just, this is going to be like if he called me on the phone and tried to talk me into this. All right, talk me into it, Gus. Well, first and foremost, you're a Sylvester Stallone season ticket holder. You have probably seen all the Expendables. You have probably seen all the escape plans. Right? Fair. So uh, I was looking at his page. There's probably a few movies on there that I, I haven't seen that you've probably seen. So wh- fair. let's start with just what's the reticence to see it? If I, have, if I have a Picasso, if I have the best Picasso painting in my living room, and then somebody says, hey, Picasso, he took another crack at it. He added some colors. It's different. He reinvented it right you know, at the tail end of his life. I'm still good with my original Picasso. That's how I feel about Rocky IV. All its flaws are, what, are part of what makes it great for me. The fact that Adrian just shows back up in Russia and it's never really addressed. They they cement it in 90 seconds and then they move on. Even though terrible wife performance by her. But now in the director's cut, apparently there's a scene where they actually talk it out. I don't know if I wanted more illumination on the Rocky Adrian marriage in Rocky Four because that's one of the things I love complaining about. You're taking away things I complained about. What if Picasso came to you and said, but I can make that better? <laughs> he <laughs> said it in Spanish. Because if you watch the... A documentary on YouTube of Stallone going through the process of the recut, he sees the flaws in the film um, and they bother him. You and I have talked for 36 years about where does the British announcer randomly come from for the fight in Russia? <laughs> and in the documentary, someone says that to Stallone. He says, I have no idea. I don't know if they were looping that day and I wasn't around. He claims amnesia. He has no idea why that voice is in there. So he takes it out. Oh, um, the smart. Scene, the scene where Rocky and Adrian are talking on the staircase. In the original... Wait a second. Like, are you talking about the, you can't win! Yes, that That's scene. It. Like, the way it's originally cut, as soon as she says that, Rocky responds. Stallone put more space in there so that he can react to it without saying anything first before he looks at her and says, Adrian always tells the truth. So it's a more hurtful moment for Rocky because there's that pause of, my wife just said that to me. Wait, she, he figured out a way for me to like Adrian less in this movie? Yeah, potentially. Oh, that's amazing. And then in the scene after he talks to his son and tells him he's not afraid, but sometimes you know it hurts so much you want to quit, but the part of you that tells you not to quit, that's, that's a good part too. And he gets up to leave. And the next thing we know, he's getting in the car. The chauffeur is waiting for him. And Adrian's just standing at the window. Yeah. Well, now he sees her in the hallway. And she tries to convince him not to go. Oh. And she cries. And so now when we look up and see her standing at the window, it's not they're mad at each other. It's this is a really difficult separation moment for the both of them. I always looked at that like she's pissed at him. staring Me at too. The staring out that window. But with that scene in there, that's not the case anymore. 
there's an entire scene of Rocky trying to convince the boxing commission to let him fight Drago for the title. And they're not having it, basically, because they don't want another death on their hands. Mm. So I, that sounds like a good keeper. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff in there. I felt 90% of the things he did actually made it better. There's some stuff during the fight scene at the end that I could have did without. But Like added fight stuff? Yeah, and some, some cutaways. I will say somehow the living in America scene is even better because there are more cutaways of Drago reacting to it. And the Dolph Lundgren's comedic touches there cannot be understated. Like he does a great job of basically going, what the fuck is going on? Right <laughs> and so that, that was really good. I think there's a little more um, of the press conference, um, but all the things you still love about it are in there. I think his goal was, and he says in the documentary, in 1985, everything was an MTV video. And even this movie. So I think he tried to make it less of that and much more. Oh, see, so he feels like it was too MTV-ish as the years pass. Yeah. But that, but the, see, that's one of the reasons I love the movie, because it's 100%. like a 90-minute MTV video. It yeah, belongs to that era. A hundred percent. And I think I, when I texted you when I was watching it, I just said, as soon as it started, I compartmentalized it as a different experience. I didn't, like, the original will always be the original. It's, it's the original Coke. Like, I'm never yeah. going to stray away from that although you know this isn't new coke it's just a different way to look at it and i think as a lifelong stallone person you kind of owe it to the artist to say i'm willing to see what you see so he chose to make this instead of an mtv era artifact to try to reinvent this as more of an actual movie that didn't necessarily have to take place in 1985 Correct. Correct. And I, I think it's just over the years, he says he's watched it probably, you know, more than you and I have combined, which is probably saying something. Um, I don't so, I don't think that's true. Maybe not. John Anderson texted me the other day, how many times do you legitimately think you've watched it? And I said, probably 40 to 50, because there's got to be on average slightly over once a year. 40 to 50. I, w I would say 60 to 65. Wouldn't you say like one and a half times a year? Would be yeah, the average. I mean, there's probably a stretch there where maybe I went a year or two without seeing it, but in its entirety. I've certainly what about in 1987? Probably good for <laughs> ten times just that that's year. True. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So I, <laughs> I think, think that that, that juices the averages. I, I wonder how much of it has to do with the Creed movies and him seeing kind of the continuation of the Apollo story and making him want to look back at he admits he says he, he wishes he hadn't killed apollo off he thought it would be more powerful if you saw apollo you know like a wheelchair or something like that someone who really suffered at the hands of drago but, but didn't die um and so maybe the creed movies made him look back at the apollo story in that way he also makes the apollo drago fight uh much more a representation of apollo putting up a fight that fight scene lasts longer. Apollo actually lands punches. Mm. Um, and the throw the damn towel goes directly from Duke saying it to the towel dropping on the floor. Whereas before, there was enough of a pause in there where you felt like Rocky was really thinking about it. Like he choked. Right, like he choked. But this is much more in real time. Throw the damn towel. He, Apollo's down. There's nothing he could have done about it. 
Did he add any more weight to the wheelbarrow scene or the the wheel plow scene in the in the log cabin when he said? <laughs> did he add CGI like five more people? No, I was hoping maybe the chess scene with Duke and the Russian um, <laughs> would, would play out more. Would play out. You know what he did? I have to. I think he got rid of the part where the Russian like knocked over all the pieces in disgust. Oh wow! I think Duke says checkmate. And then next thing we know, he's like looking upstairs to go talk to Ryan. I'm glad there was no more to that speech. Like the, the yeah, speech was the, the Duke, Duke speech, speech is perfect. Yeah, there send that no, to the yeah. movie museum. So stuff he took out. He took out the robot. The robot's gone. The robot is completely gone. Um, there's that's more. ridiculous. That's like the most unintentionally funny part of the entire movie. How did they I cut that? I think that's why he hates it. Um, there's a few more Bert Young lines in there, I think, during the press conference. Uh, mm. There's a longer scene, actually, a, I believe a completely new scene where Apollo and Rocky are talking about who should fight Drago. Oh. And, and, and Rocky basically is like, I don't want to. Not yet. And Apollo's like, well, then I should do it because we need to stand up for these people. It was at, it's like at Rocky's house and they're outside and Apollo's holding a football and that was a whole new scene. Any Brigitte Nielsen ads or cuts? That's a weird one, considering they dated. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, there's a little bit more of the Russian head guy when he's talking about the training and all that. Oh, that guy. Um, yeah, there might have been yeah. a line or two, but nothing substantial. You know, it's a we did Cobra on the rewatchables recently, and I had no idea the backstory where the movie was like 35 minutes longer and then Top Gun was coming out the week before and Stallone got freaked out that Cobra was going to get killed by Top Gun and it, it, like the 11th hour cut 25 to 30 minutes out of Cobra so that it could play in more theaters. Oh, wow. So it could be like an, an hour 35 instead of two hours so they could turn around one more showing so it would make more money. And that's why that movie is so incoherent. <laughs> And we've, we'd always said with Cobra, like, it just feels like there's scenes missing Yeah, what's going on. And then it turns out, yeah, there's scenes missing because they hastily edited 30 minutes out. I wonder if he's going to do Cobra next because Cobra actually feels like there's more there. I, w I wouldn't touch Rocky Four. Now you're making me want to watch it. I think I'm like 80% now I'm going to end up getting this. But Cobra, I'd be fired up for. Well, I wonder if something similar happened because... Rocky Four came out, I want to say Thanksgiving of 85. Yeah. So there are probably some other powerhouse movies coming out at that time. Maybe so he chopped it. Maybe he felt some of that. Some of that was probably the studio also. I mean, in general, you just when you watch the documentary, you get the impression that he just um, didn't care for a lot of decisions that other people made on behalf of the movie. Well, the British announcer anecdote is crazy. I'll tell you this. Hey, Sly, if you're listening, stay away from Rocky Three. <laughs> that movie's perfect. It's one of the 10 greatest movies of all time. And it needs no adding or taking away. It just doesn't. Well, sadly, there's no more Warner Wolf. I was hoping that you know Warner might get a few more lines. Oh, for Rocky Four. Yeah. No, he still, <laughs> he still just can't get over the size of the Russian. That's pretty much all, all Warner has, unfortunately. I would like to, if it's okay, I would like to... Um, Paraphrase Sly in an effort to get you to that last 20% to watch okay. this. Okay? Yeah. I believe you should watch it. But it doesn't matter what I believe because you're the one that's got to carry that fear around inside you, afraid that it's going to ruin the original. 
that there will be fewer gear shifts during No Easy Way Out, that the Russians don't embrace Rocky in the end. Well, none of it's true, but it doesn't matter if I tell you. It doesn't matter because you're the one that's got to settle it. Get rid of it! Because when all the smoke is cleared and everyone is through watching it for themselves, it's just going to be you. And you can't live like that because it's going to bother you for the rest of your life. Look at what it's doing to you now. Cousin Sal thinks you should watch it. So do I. <laughs> You're going to want to watch it for the right reasons. Not for the guilt over Rocky Five, Not for your followers. Not for the ringer. Not for the podcast or me. But for you. Just mm. you. Just you alone. That's great. Is it on demand yet? I don't know if I'm going to a theater for this, but I'll be oh, able no, to rent I, it, right? Yeah, I watched it on Apple TV. Oh, I'm definitely getting this then. God damn, why did you do this to me? I was so happy with just my original Rocky Four experience. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't need to add to my Rocky Four experience. You know what I'm wondering is three years from now, does this version air on USA and all the channels that show it ad nauseum? I don't think so. I think the original will be the one that plays in perpetuity. And so you get this, you try it, you go, all right, that was interesting. I got it. But I don't know that this is something you go back and watch again. It does tap into this. You know, obviously we have a podcast called The Rewatchables. These rewatchable movies that you see so many times. Then when you find out there's deleted scenes on YouTube or something, and it's so fascinating to see those. You're like, oh my God, there's two more minutes of this movie. And usually they're disappointing for the most part. But in yeah, this case, it sounds like there's some real stuff that needed to be in the movie. Yeah, but you also watch those deleted scenes out of context. True. So when you watch this in its entirety, you go, oh, this makes sense. Oh, I get why he said that now. Oh, I understand what she was feeling now. So I think it's just kind of a different experience. And I think, like I said, I think it's worth watching one time. But I don't know that you go back and watch it again, but, you know, for my 60th birthday, you can send me the complete DVD set and I'll probably be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't change any of the gear shifts, right? Just tell, the, just tell me that. All the gear it's, shifts He, are he there. still has 37 gear shifts? Yeah. I think he took out a few of the very tight shots of his eyes. There's a couple uh, in there. But in the documentary, he was talking about how that was just nothing but pure vanity. He just wanted to see himself looking so good up nice and close. Well, and, Col and Cobra's like that too. There's just scenes where he just wants to wear sunglasses and have a matchstick in his mouth and not, yeah. not do anything. Did he take out the stuff when Rocky isn't looking at the road as he's going 85 miles an hour and he's just nope. looking still, at the side down? Still That's still in there? Okay. There's no other cars on the street. He drives through that tunnel all by himself. All right. I'm going to watch it. I'll report back. I look forward to it. Do you want to say goodbye to Noah Syndergaard before we go or no? Uh, well, I, I, I figure if nothing else, he's just going to be closer to Trevor Bauer, right? So that's a good thing. <laughs> what are the Mets going to do this? I guess there's going to be no season, so it doesn't matter. No, I think there'll be a season. I just think, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait. No, I think spring training actually will start on time. I think this is one of those. Oh, you're optimistic, Gus. Yeah, I think that, you know, December 2nd, I think that gives them enough time, maybe the abbreviated spring training. But uh, you know, I think that's part of the reason why teams are taking care of some of this business now. But I, I think there'll be a season. I would have brought Eduardo Rodriguez back for $14 million a year if it were me. But Really? What do I know? Yeah, yeah I, I think $14 million a year for a starter who's, I don't know, above average, at least statistically. I'm not against that. Years? We got a draft pick out of it. So I guess that's what they were thinking about. 
And yeah, they figured they could send that money somewhere else. But was it five years? It was five years, but it was only fourteen million a year. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, Barrios getting seven years to me. I'm, I'm always a little sketchy about giving pitchers. What's your max shares or that kind of money? Me too. For Couldn't that, agree more. Those kind of years. All right. Thank uh, thanks to your Broncos for losing me a bunch of money last week, and appreciate that too. <laughs> well, we're a five hundred team that plays like a five hundred team. So. <laughs> All right. Good to see you as always. Thanks for the report. My pleasure. All right, that's it for the podcast. It was produced by Kyle Creighton. Thanks to House and to Verno and to Sharp and to my buddy Gus. Don't forget about Music Box, 8 p.m. HBO. First of five films in a row on Thursdays. Jagged. It's about Alanis Morissette, directed by Allison Clayman. Check it out. And I will see you on this feed on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs>